Welcome to the 17th episode of the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hello everybody, all the listeners in, where and whenever you are. Alex Nicely here, ready to speak with Dr. Michael Faenza Pipaon. Doctor, do I give you your full three names, Faenza Pipaon, or can I just call you Miguel? Please call me Miguel, of course. Fantastic. Are you a Madrileño? It doesn't look as if you've ever, well, aside from some time in Baylor in the States and in uh, Rotterdam, I think it was, you've been mostly in Madrid. It's true. I mean, in, in Spain, normally we don't move that much. So I have been trained, well, I have been born, trained and work in Madrid, except two years that I spent in Rotterdam and in Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. What got you started in pediatrics? What made that of interest to you? Well, I was interested in real clinical medicine and in a general perspective of the patient. So I had to choose between internal medicine for adults and pediatrics. And I thought pediatrics was much more appealing. That's why I chose to be trained as a pediatrician. Gotcha. Um, you know that I'm a pediatric pathologist and I'm a pediatric pathologist with an interest in liver disease so that I have over my 30 years, 40 years in the field, seen a good bit of iatrogenic disease in the premature infant. We've gotten better, much better, at taking care of these kids. When I was, uh, when I was starting out, they were, one of the mottos that I heard was that they're much like fish. Throw them back, they're too small to keep. But now we're keeping even the smallest ones down to 500 grams, and we're keeping them alive, and we're making them in an extrauterine environment grow at a rate of from 500 grams to 3,500 grams within something like three months. That's an amazing accomplishment, having to replicate, having to make the premature infant function on her or his own with everything that has to all of a sudden become mature. That is a real challenge. And from what from the articles that you've sent me, I have the impression that you're really moving forward with identifying the deficiencies in our present care and sorting out ways to make up for them. So joining European Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition allows us to promote the best practice in the delivery of care and the provision of high quality education for pediatric professionals globally. So that is why uh, I asked to join the Committee of Nutrition in ESCAN and that uh, in that sense, the Committee of Nutrition has updated their position paper in 2022 on the enteral feeding in stable preterm infants weighing less than 1,800 grams at birth. So I think this 
will be a very much important goal to disseminate the knowledge to try to achieve the best functional outcomes of these really vulnerable infants. That's where you, one of the papers that you sent me, that by Miha Shadal, comes into play. Let me read this just let me read this title to you. Bone Mineral Density, Body Composition, and Metabolic Health of Very Low Birth Weight Infants Fed in Hospital Following Current Management Recommendations During the First Year of Life. It appears in a journal called Nutrients. And what I take away from that is that we're not meeting, or we are often not meeting, the standards that are set out in that recommendation, particularly for the very low birth weight infants. You had a cohort of 94 very low birth weight infants, which you compared with a cohort of term infants numbering 34. Those low birth weight infants were divided into groups of 55, which were low and 39 appropriate growth at the time that they left the neonatal nursery or at the time that they were 36 weeks old. And then on six-month intervals, you followed up the growth of these infants until they were three years old. A sentence that really struck me is that target in-hospital protein and energy intake was not achieved. Tell us about that. Okay, so it's true that the, the recommendations that we have just put in the public domain try to provide intake range that optimize nutritional status and minimize harms. Mm -hmm. And it's true that it's very difficult for these infants to achieve these recommendations. Maybe because of illness in some cases, maybe it's related not with illness, but with gastrointestinal capability of digest and tolerate this amount of feeding that is required. So that's why it's so important that we will be able to set up the goals and trying to help pediatricians to achieve these goals in the common practice, because very frequently these goals are not achieved by our doctors. What stands in the way of achieving those goals in your clinical experience? I think first you have to get acquainted with the importance of nutrition. It's not a matter of his receiving human milk. It's a matter of receiving is the infant receiving the amount of nutrients that they need in terms of protein, calories, essential fatty acids, minerals. So that would be the first thing, trying to see how the infant is, uh, the doctor uh, order the, uh, the correct nutrition for that infant and how the infant tolerate. So if the infant receive all the feedings, if, don't, if, the, if the infant do not receive the feeding, how is the infant uh, responded in growth to the nutrients the doctor prescribed. I think these three components, prescribing, tolerance, and, and evaluating growth response are very important.
And yet, somehow, even in the cohort that you supervised and managed, that wasn't always the case. Well, here we are with another sentence or two. Within our target energy and protein intakes, neither energy nor protein intake, but gestational age, birth weight, and illness severity were major determinants of in-hospital growth. We hypothesize that higher in-hospital target protein energy intake may improve in-hospital growth and, uh, and the eventual after-hospital outcome. So they're not making the goals that are present now, and yet it's time to increase the goals, push them further. Help me understand that. Well, thank you very much. I think this is a very important topic because really when we talk about premature infant, we are talking about a constellation of infants, a different type of infants. So there is nothing to do at 25 weekers with a baby of 31 weeks gestation. Mm -hmm. There is nothing to do a baby of 700 grams of birth weight with a baby of 1,200 grams birth weight. So I think the main determinant of growth failure in these infants is gestational age. So the earlier the infant is born, the greater the risk of undernutrition at this charge. So I think this should be very important taking into account. So what means is that the smaller or the younger or the more immature the infant is born, the more focus should be played on the nutrition the infant received and on managing and tracking growth of the infant. So for example, uh, for example, regarding protein intake, very preterm infants requires between 3.5 and 4 grams per kilogram per day of enteral high quality protein to match the intrauterine accretion rate. But this intake could be increased to 4.5 grams per kilogram per day when growth is slow. So that means that they need more than human milk because protein content of human milk decreases over time. So, for example, in the guide of the ESGAN, we advise that monitoring plasma urea levels regularly may be helpful. Low urea concentrations in the first few weeks of life would allow increasing enteral protein intake. I think I'm getting a better picture of what the goals are and how they are to be achieved. We've been, maybe it's wishful thinking, but haven't we been saying to ourselves, hey, once they leave the hospital, once they're out there on their own, they will have catch-up growth, everything will be fine? Your, your results seem strongly to suggest that no, everything will not be fine in terms of body mass, in terms of fat, in terms of, worst of all, neurodevelopment. If you start out too small, you stay too small. So that's the natural history. But there is 
this is this paper you refer to is up to three years of life. Yes. So there is some ni nice data from Nick Embleton in United Kingdom, who shows that when infants or preterm infants arrive to adolescence around 12 years of age, you are not able to distinguish preterm infants between from term infants in weight or length, or I mean, or, or yeah, or length. So, or stator. So, so the infants that are born preterm arrive at the same, achieve the same weight and the same length at 12 years of age than term infants. So the matter or the question that you, that you ask is really interesting. When this catch-up occurs, when this catch-up occurs later on, around eight years of age, that will pose the infant to risk of increased fat mass, increased risk of later disease in adulthood. When these infants do catch-up early, in the first year of life, those infants do not have an increased risk of increased fat mass, insulin resistance, hypertension. So we have to be aware that we have a window of opportunity from this charge to one year of age that will allow us to do catch up without later consequences. Do I explain myself? Well, I think I understand you, although if in a half an hour, if you ask me to repeat it, I can't see that I'd do so accurately. But right now, I feel very chuffed about myself having taken this on board and having understood it. You're saying that they'll grow up by the time they reach adolescence, early adolescence, 12 years of age, and you won't be able to tell the difference between a prematurely born child and a term-born child. And that's great news. You're saying as well that if they make that catch-up growth, if they join the normal growth curve within the first year of life, then they are not programmed for metabolic disease in later life. So that the monitoring, the close monitoring and attention to nutrition that must be paid these very low birth weight patients needs to continue after discharge and to be intensive if they are to make that growth during that first year. But, but you haven't addressed neurodevelopmental outcome. Did this Nick Hamilton, maybe I haven't got the name right, but the, did this Brit take a look at how his subjects were doing intellectually and neurodevelopmentally at the age of 12? It was not in this uh, report by Nick Hamilton that you said very well. No, but it's true that there is a lot of research actually in nutrition and, and brain growth and later neurodevelopment. Mm -hmm. And the message will be that there is a relationship between fat-free mass acquisition and brain growth and neurodevelopment. So it is very important, something we, that we have been already speaking about, 
is protein intake. Mm -hmm. So protein intake is the main driven of fat-free mass acquisition and fat-free mass acquisition is related to brain growth and is related to neurodevelopment. So something that we can do from a nutrition perspective in this very preterm infant is trying or achieving an adequate protein intake that we have set already in 3.5 to 4 grams per kilogram per day. Mm -hmm. As human milk is the best nutrition for these preterm infants, but human milk has relatively less protein quantity, human milk should be fortified. And in 30%, 30% of the preterm infants need extra fortification, extra protein intake, and the doctor duty is trying to see how the baby is growing, which is the amount of protein the baby is receiving, and in 30% of the infant, extra fortification should be needed to achieve adequate growth, adequate fat-free mass acquisition, and later on, adequate brain growth and adequate neurodevelopment. Well, I look forward to learning at some point how neurodevelopment actually has progressed and has uh, joined that normal curve in these infants when they're provided with enough protein, enough calorie, and appropriate nutrition. That's, that's, uh, it sounds as if the recommendations from ESPGAN are going to be a continually updated matter as these things are sorted out and as, as you say, more, a different amount of emphasis or different goals come out of research as being appropriate for subsets of these children. Am I right about that? Sure. So now environment is so important for the development of these infants. So environment means, for example, single rooms, family center care. So there are another topics that modulate the environment okay. apart from nutrition. But it's true that nutrition is really something that we can modify, modify the environment and achieve better outcomes. So I am sure that new topics will arrive in how nutrition modulate disease and modulate development. For example, regarding a free regarding fatty acid intake. So mm -hmm. you know about polyunsaturated fatty acids and and those those infants really are on need of DHA and arachidonic acid supplementation. So more studies are appearing and will become uh, in the in the coming future regarding how the intake of these fatty acids regulate disease. For example, regarding neurodevelopment, regarding retinopathy of prematurity, and maybe another diseases related with prematurity that can be modulated 
but fatty acids intake. Miguel, um, you're also working on ways to, uh, I'm going to use a bit of American slang here, to juge up, to push along, to increase the ability of the infant gut, and particularly the preterm infant gut, to handle nutrition. I'm reading now your JAMA Pediatrics article's title, um, Efficacy and Safety of Enteral Recombinant Human Insulin in Preterm Infants, a Randomized Clinical Trial. I went through that and I was puzzled by one thing. Here we are with the knowledge that insulin can turbocharge infant gut maturation, insulin given enterally. You tried two different doses and found that both of them were good, but more was better. <laughs> and here I am again saying, well, wait just a minute. Babies fed on milk, human milk, are getting hardly any insulin through the milk after day three. So you're not using a physiologic approach here. Or If insulin is the key, you're not using it to unlock the door. You're using it in big, big quantities to batter the dang door down and get it, that nutrition into the baby. Milk isn't just insulin. Milk has a lot of other factors that no doubt influence maturation. We've got insulin on the shelf. We've got insulin in the jar. We can give insulin. But are the effects of giving insulin to speed up, to increase nutrition, long-term, still no, are they known yet? How are these kids, how are these kids going to behave short-term, long-term? Can you talk us through that? Well, thank you very much. So it's true that we were focusing ourselves in macronutrient intake. So we were talking about protein and calories and we were talking about human milk and it's true also that human milk has, has some other nutrients other functional components that may influence development of preterm infants and there are different uh, constitutes of human milk but you ask me really i think an important paper we have published this year in jama pediatrics regarding a clinical trial in we have tested the effect of giving insulin at a pharmacological doses at colostrum doses and then against placebo mm -hmm. and we have we have found greater than our expectation. And we, we expected like an increase in two days of improving uh, the achieve of uh, full enteral intake and it was much higher than those. So really the results fulfill our expectations even greater than we expected. So now the question will be, what is the, if, is there any is there any long-term benefit of the preterm infants regarding insulin intake? We do not know yet. So it's true that we are going to follow these infants and we will try to answer this question, but today we are not able to do so. But it is very important in preterm nutrition, not just to see effects 
at short term like this one that is really important but trying to see if there is there are effects at long term and also we are in the process of replicating this study including the really very small infants because those infants below 24 25 weeks were not included and also we are going to include IUGR so intrauterine growth restricted infants in this study trying to see the effect on those so we are still working on this but we think it is very important because as you said is trying to help the god like you said like a turbo <laughs> well it's funny turbo it's true it's very nice as you said it but yeah we are trying to develop quickly the god there is another paper related with this that we found got closure much more rapidly in those infants that receive insulin published in clinical nutrition so it's true by the group of the netherlands so it's true that we are we are accelerating the development of the gut and i think that as far as we know today we have achieved important outcomes but we have to corroborate them in the long term in the future thank you very much and you have to extend them down to those infants less than 25 weeks gestational age when they're born because those are the ones who need the most help to put on that lean body mass that will determine so much else about their growth and development postnatally you are really smart you are really smart this is very important those are the messages thank you very much hey the way you presented them in your paper even somebody like me can follow them so i recommend those two articles strongly to those who are listening miguel we don't want this to turn into a mutual compliment exchange society uh, but I have enjoyed this very much, and I think I've learned something. And if you want to get in touch, as I said, in a half an hour and see how much of it I've retained, go right ahead. I do have a question about your surname, though. I, and that is, I know that your the first part of it is the same as Sanchez or Saint, right? I think that's right. Um, but then I had to look up, where is Pipaon? because you're from the science, come from Pipaon. And Pipaon has 33 people at the last <laughs> census. It's up in the Basque country. Are, are, is there another Pipaon? Because when I look up science to Pipaon on Google, it's, it's a basketful of really accomplished people. Are they all your relatives? <laughs> Yeah, P <laughs> Pipaon is a small village in the north of Spain, and that is where my father's family come from. And really, they are hard workers, and uh, really, we try to improve society. That's, that's maybe the thing that we look forward, trying to improve society. My father was a doctor, and I am a doctor too. My grandfather was a veterinary. And I think we love, we love uh, like life science, we love research, and yeah, we'll try to do our best to improve society. Uh, what I like about that approach is that as a physician, as a physician 
in an academic setting, as a research physician, you're not just a one patient at a time doctor. You're a whole class of patients doctor making advances, making advances with the assistance of ESPGAN that benefit lots and lots of patients down the line. One of the things that you commented on in the cheat sheet that you sent me was that one of the most disappointing experiences in your professional life has been when patients or their parents don't appreciate how hard one works for them. And that, that made me sad, because it's true. <laughs> but there are a lot of other gratifications involved in taking care of these babies. Do you have an outpatient clinic? Do you follow them up yourself? So we are very fortunate in the sense that uh, we work here in Madrid in a very nice environment with nice results and with a, a good standard of care. And normally, uh, parents and society are grateful. And in that sense, you feel very much comfort. But it's true that when I have been asked regarding what was disappointed, is when you are not able to get this empathy with the parents, and then they don't really uh, appreciate the work you do for, your, for their kids. But honestly, I think is is a, min a minority. So we are great. We are fortunate enough that there is a lot of support of our work. And we have follow-up clinic till seven years of age. It's true that I work more in the neonatal intensive care. So others, colleagues, uh, neonatologists do the follow-up. But it's true that follow-up is so important because we have these windows of opportunity we have talked already and also because we have to uh, we we um, we the infants leave our unit earlier and earlier and that's very important because the where they stay best is at their homes with their family looking after them so we have to guarantee that they uh, that the discharge to home and the adaptation in the coming months or years are optimal. So yeah, we have a follow-up that is working very, very well at the moment. Thank you. I imagine that over time, even the parents who aren't particularly grateful come to realize that really you had their best interests and their baby's best interests at heart. It's almost time to say goodbye. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. But, um, and now I'm really kind of curious. We ask the people interviewed during these podcasts to come up with something about their, their native land, a song in particular, that they think represents them and how, them and their nation, them and their origins. Now, is it going to be from Madrid or is it going to be from the Basque country? What have you got, what have you got ready for us? <laughs> I don't know. It's from Spain. I don't know. I think it's from Madrid, but for sure it's from Spain. And it's called The Angels Wear White Clothes. And it's, uh. it's a tribute to the nurses, I think. Well, also to the doctors, but mainly to the nurses. I think our vulnerable infants need a lot of care 
and the families and nurses and the doctors together will be able to do so. So uh, there is uh, there is a pop music by uh, a singer who died from uh, cancer uh, disease recently, I think two years ago. And one, I mean, his last album was uh, appeared this song that is called The Angels Wear White Clothes and is a tribute to the, the nurses and the doctors of the hospitals. que entran y salen a gran velocidad corriendo en los pasillos del viejo hospital ágiles, cansados, pero usada valentía dejándose la vida para que otros estén bien los ángeles no tienen alas, lazos ni rizos dorados los ángeles visten de blanco los ángeles no tienen alas, lazos ni rizos dorados, los ángeles visten de blanco. Ángeles que bailan cuando la música no suena, que curan las heridas sin más que una sonrisa. If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Sir, thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing the song. <laughs> thank you very much. I have spent a very nice time with you all, and I hope I have been able to, uh, to communicate to you the relevance of nutrition in the very preterm infant.